All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to be in uh, chapter 5, and we're going to be reading uh, verse 17 through the beginning of chapter 6. Again, that's 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we're going to start reading in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have as believers, to even be here this morning, to gather in this place freely without any significant fear of persecution. We thank you for the privilege we have to be those who have easy and frequent and even free access to your word. Father, we pray that we would not take the freedom we enjoy uh, in this country lightly and that we would not take the freedom we have in Christ lightly. And we pray that you would send your spirit this morning to help us to understand your word, to understand that rules and, and regulations and commands and requirements for the church exist to help us live out and bear witness to the gospel. We thank you that we are saved by grace alone and that we get to respond, empowered by your Spirit, to the grace you've shown us with obedience. We pray that today you would help us to do that to your word, by your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If some of you are here this morning uh, expecting a you know, a patriotic sermon. Sorry, you will be disappointed. As you can tell by the passage, we are not talking about America. We are talking about the church uh, and what uh, elders are supposed to do, what elders aren't supposed to do, what we're supposed to do with elders. And then at the very end, there's that little section about bond servants and masters. And uh, to be honest, you know, this is one of those passages that kind of seems like, well, wh- like, why does this matter? You know, he's just saying, like, do this, don't do this. These are elders. This is how you should treat them. 
This is how you should honor them. This is how you should, you know, respond when they sin. So he gives us all these little things, and it kind of begs the question, why does this matter? And it matters because in doing these things and structuring the church in a certain way and, you know, having elders serve and supporting those elders and correcting those elders when they sin and how we put elders in place, all of that matters because it affects our witness to the gospel. So that's why all of this matters. And uh, to be honest, there are some parts of this passage which I really, really like. Uh, So, for example, the first two verses. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. What does that mean? What does it mean to be worthy of double honor? And then he's going to explain it in verse 19, or verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Let the ox eat while it's working, and the laborer deserves his wages. Pay those who work. So these first two verses are about the fact that we should pay elders especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And I really like this verse. But not because of the reason you all laughed. I like it because of two things. First of all, it shows how completely backwards the church has responded uh, to God's word in the, you know, professionalization of ministry. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that, right? Most churches out there, and even BC, when I got hired, the, what happened was the guy who was the lead pastor, Sam, left. And so BC put together a search process, went about to hire a pastor. Right? We needed to get a professional pastor, some guy that had been to seminary, some guy that was trained to be a pastor. And pretty much any other church, if their pastor leaves, that's what they're going to do, right? They're going to look for some guy that's been to seminary, that's been trained, that has ministry experience. But that's not at all what Paul tells Timothy to do. He says, if you have an elder who's, who's ruling well, who's doing the work of an elder, who's laboring and preaching and teaching, then you should support him. He doesn't say go out and find an elder that you can support. He says, you've got elders, start paying one so they can focus more on ministry. And that's the way it should be, right? If you want to know in Scripture what the difference is between a paid pastor and an unpaid pastor, this is it. There's there's no difference between me and Sean and Daniel and Jason and Matt and our called to ministry. It's not that like I'm called to be a pastor who gets paid and they're called to be pastors who don't get paid. We're the same. The only difference is I get paid so that I can focus more of my time and more of my energy and more of my effort on ministry. And so if we ever get to the place in our budget where we say, hey, we need to hire another pastor, we're not going to call seminaries. We're not going to say, hey, we need another professional pastor to come here to do this work with Dan. We're going to say, we've already got five elders. Does one of them want to get paid? Does Sean want to spend more time on ministry and less time on admissions? Or Daniel spend more time on ministry and less time teaching? Or or Matt or Jason? We would go to them and say, hey, do you guys want to do this part-time or full-time or whatever? That's what this is about. There is no difference between clergy and non-clergy. The only difference is we call some of them elders and some of those elders get paid. 
The second reason why I really like this verse is because it is a huge witness to the gospel. Right? Normally, when I use other people as examples, I get their permission first, but I'm about to do one where I didn't get their permission, so read. I hope this doesn't bother you. But we had a conversation earlier this summer with the interns, and Reed said uh, that he felt like what he was doing, you know, as an intern at BC this summer who's getting some financial support to do that, he said, I feel like I'm not doing anything different than what, you know, we would kind of expect of a normal member. And my initial response to that was, exactly. Right? Who does ministry? Not the elders, not the pastors, not the interns, every Christian. The difference is some of those Christians get paid so they can focus more of their time and energy and efforts on that ministry. And so when Reed said that, I was like, absolutely. And then I thought more about it later and I said, well, your life should look a little different, right? Because you're focusing on this, whereas other people have jobs and all that other stuff. And I say that to say, you paying me to do this is a huge witness to the gospel to me and my family. Right? Think about the gospel. In the gospel, because of what Christ has done for us, we get something that we don't deserve. We get something that we haven't earned. Every time my direct deposit hits my account, I get a reminder of that. I'm not doing anything exceptional, anything extraordinary, anything that's you know, more significant ministry than the rest of you. And yet you all are supporting me graciously and generously. Like you bear witness to the gospel to me when I get paid to do this. And the problem with the first thing where churches get it backwards is that that's gone. That's done away with. The pastor gets supported because he deserves it, because he's a professional, because he's doing things that you guys can't do. And that's just not true. I didn't earn being a pastor. And if you don't believe me, get on the website later today and listen to the interview sermon I preached at BC five years ago. Supporting elders to do the work of ministry is a witness to the gospel because we are giving them something that they don't deserve so that they can do the work that we are all called to do. And I know for Dinesh, the planter we're supporting in India, that's how he feels about it. He is always exceedingly grateful for the support that our church gives him so that he can do the work that he feels called to do in India. I can imagine that Brian and Cassie and where they're at would feel the same exact way. They don't deserve to have everyone else support them to do the work they're doing. It's, it's grace to them. It's a witness to the gospel that we support elders. And so that's how we're going to keep doing it at BC. There are no professional pastors. There are some people that the Spirit has set apart as elders, and some of those get paid to do the work that all of them are required to do. And so we're not going to uh, act like professionals because we're not professionals. Well, hopefully we'll have some level of professionalism. Uh, but a pastor isn't better than a member. An elder isn't better than a deacon who's better than a community group leader who's better than a member. That doesn't exist. 
The difference is some are set apart for the work. And because of that, there is a little different treatment, but not necessarily in a good way. Look at what comes next. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So here, Paul is telling Timothy, all right, this is what you do to support them. Now he's saying this is what you do when elders sin, when elders fail to do the work they're called to do. And so it says, first of all, don't admit a charge against an elder on the evidence, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This does not mean that we as believers cannot call fellow believers out on sin. A charge is different than sin. Charge means saying that they are not qualified to be an elder. It's essentially saying this guy should be removed from being an elder. When it comes to sin, if you think that me or one of the other elders is sinning, you are required to call it out in us. Right? Matthew 18, if you see one of your other brothers in sin, go to him. That's a command. What that means is that if somebody else has sinned against us and we don't go to them, we're sinning. We're being disobedient. We are required to go to them and confront them. So this doesn't mean don't call out sin in an elder. Do it or you're sinning. What it means is that if there is an elder in your church and you don't think based on his life, based on what he says, based on his teaching, based on anything that disagrees with the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, that it's your responsibility to confront that. But the elders shouldn't seriously consider a charge like that unless it's brought by more than one person. So if after this service, one of you comes to us and says, hey, you know, Sean said this thing. His character is like this. Because of that, I don't think he should be an elder. We're going to receive that. We're going to hear that. We're going to talk to Sean about that. But we're not going to seriously consider removing him as an elder unless we hear that from a bunch of people. Unless three people come to us and say, Sean did this, Sean did this, Sean did this, Sean did this. Then we're going to say, wait a second, maybe there's a pattern in Sean's life that means we need to remove him. Thankfully, that hasn't happened. Uh, But if it did, we would absolutely take it seriously. Elders and their sin, I think the way Paul talks about this here means that we should take it more seriously than we do with other people. I mean, look at what he says. As for those who persist in sin, so if somebody is unrepentant, Perfection isn't required, right? Elders will sin just like everybody else. We don't expect perfection. What we expect is repentance. So if they don't repent, if they persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. I don't like that. (laughs) Right? I do not want to have my dirty laundry aired in front of everyone. And I imagine that none of you want that either. But Paul says that if we have an elder, if we have a leader in the church who is persisting in sin, who's refusing to repent, who knows that it's wrong but wants to stay in it, our job is to say, this guy is doing this, and it's wrong. And we should remove him from his position. And the reason why is so that the rest may stand in fear. Because what's going to happen if you know, we become aware of sin in another elder's life? and we just don't do anything about it. It's not going to be long before we think, hey, 
I can get away with that too. It's not going to be long before those who are supposed to lead the church by example start leading by an example in sin. And other people start to follow that. Our job is to hold the leaders accountable to a higher standard. And the question we should ask is, really? Because aren't we all held to the same standard? Right? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's the only standard that matters. But the Bible also tells us that leaders will be held more accountable. James 3.1 says that not many of you should desire to be teachers because you'll be judged with a greater strictness. Those who teach will be held more accountable because, I think, simply for the fact that they say a whole lot more. And where words are many, sin is not absent. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to fall. We're going to sin, but we're still called to repent in it. Paul says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. What he's doing here is he's like invoking a courtroom scene where uh, God and Jesus and the angels are witnesses. And we're called not to show partiality. What that means, I think, is that uh, we're not supposed to make exceptions for elders because they're elders. We're not supposed to make exceptions for elders because they're friends, because they're brothers, because they're people we're really close to. We're to take sin seriously because our witness to the gospel matters. And if we don't, we malign the gospel. Next, he's going to talk about how we put elders in place. He says, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others, but keep yourself pure. When he says laying on of hands, what he means is appointing someone as an elder, like commissioning them. I think the reason why he says don't be hasty is because it's really easy to put someone in a position of leadership before you really know them. Right? If some guy comes into the church who's a great leader, who everyone likes, it's not that hard to say, hey, he should be a leader. We should put him in a position. We should give him a title. We should give him authority, even before we really know who he is. A lot of church plants, like one of the most common early mistakes you'll hear a church planner say that they made is putting elders in place too early. We should not be hasty with this, because if we do that, We take part in their sin. If we put someone in a position of authority who we know shouldn't be there, we're participating with them. If we don't call it out, if we don't rebuke it, if we don't uh, confront them, then we become uh, a partner in their sin. Instead, we should keep ourselves pure. And then comes verse 23. This parenthetical statement that Paul makes just to make sure Timothy doesn't misunderstand. Keep yourself pure, but don't drink only water. But use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So for Paul, Timothy as an elder is supposed to keep himself pure, but it's okay for him to drink a little wine. Evidently, that doesn't prevent him from being pure. 
The reason why Paul does this is because of the false teaching he's confronting. Remember back earlier in 1 Timothy, there were those guys who would come in the church and said, you know, you've got to abstain from marriage, you've got to abstain from certain foods. So they were telling Timothy, you know, you can't do this. You can't have a little wine, even for medicinal purposes. So Paul here is making sure that he's very clear with Timothy. Timothy, keep yourself pure, but that doesn't mean this. And I like this verse. (laughs) Because I have had plenty of people come to me in my life and say, like, it's okay for Christians to do these things, but it's not okay for pastors. Because you're a pastor, you know, there's a different level of obedience required from you. There's a different level of purity required from you. But Paul, I think, is very intentional at confronting this in Timothy. Stay pure, but that doesn't mean that you can't do this. He says the sins of some people are conspicuous. That means that they are readily seen. We all know people like this in our lives, right? Who they wear their failures and their shortcomings outwardly. And everybody knows about them. But the sins of others appear later. Some people seem like they've got it all together on the outside, but as we labor with them in relationship, we begin to see the obvious, that they don't have it all together. So some people, their sins are evident. And those people we would look at and say, like, that guy shouldn't be an elder because of, you know, this whole mess of things he has going on. Other people, we might be deceived and think, well, they don't have all this sin in their life. But he's saying that they do. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. What this means is that as we patiently observe leaders in the church and wait, we're not hasty, we wait to appoint them to a position of authority, we begin to see their life. We see the sins that are evident. We see the sins that may not be evident. We also see their good works. And uh, even the ones that aren't readily seen will be seen. For example, there's some people in this church that we know that serve more than anyone else. And nobody really knows about it. Because everything they do is behind the scenes. Because they don't make a big show of it. And so it would be very easy for us to overlook someone like that and say, well, they're not serving. They're not doing all these things because they're not advertising it. They're not promoting themselves. And that's why we have to be patient when we put elders in positions. I think that I hope you've seen that at BC. Like when we wanted to uh, you know, bring Daniel and Sean on the elder team, we talked about it. And then we put them in a process where we all kind of watched them. And we had been watching them before that. This isn't something that we want to do quickly. And so we actually have a kind of a, it's a policy, but it's not a policy because it's not written down. But we won't really put anybody into a position of leadership until they've been at BC for at least six months and preferably a year. And so if you're somebody that's new and thinking, why haven't they asked me to lead? That's why. Because we don't want to put anybody in leadership until we know them well. All of this stuff matters. 
because for leaders, we bear witness to the gospel in a greater way. When we talked about the qualifications of elders and deacons, we talked about how they're not these, you know, extraordinary things that elders and deacons are held to, but nobody else is. They're simply to be examples of the kind of life that every Christian is supposed to lead. And that's what we want leaders to do at BC. And to be honest, I don't think that we have held leaders here to uh, as high of a standard as we should have. I think we need to elevate that. I think we should hold leaders more accountable. I think when we see leaders who are leading poorly, we should confront them. We should call it out. We should consider the fact that maybe they shouldn't be a leader. If you're leading, you should be leading people toward Christ. If you're not, then we don't want you to lead here. Again, this this doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. We're not perfect. We can lead people in repentance instead of leading them in a continual pattern of sin. That's what we want to see. That's how we want leaders to act because the gospel matters and we bear witness to it. This next thing that we get in this passage is just this bit about bond servants and masters. So he's talked about you know, how elders should conduct themselves as witnesses to the gospel, how the church should conduct themselves as witnesses to the gospel. And then he talks about these people in this very specific situation, bondservants. Let those who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. In some ways, this sounds like a really odd thing for Paul to say. Because if you look down in the footnote in the ESV, the word bondservant can also be translated as slave. And so Paul is essentially saying servants, slaves, should honor their masters. And that seems really strange to us because we read this passage and hear this passage with our, you know, North American interpretive hats on. So we think, you know, slavery, how can Paul say what he's saying here? But what we have to recognize is that their situation is very different from what we experience with slavery in this country. Slavery in this country, I think if Paul was addressing that, he would have given no room for that in light of the gospel. Because there isn't one. I think he would have taken the, well, first of all, I don't think there would be a believing master but he would have taken anyone who called themselves a believer to task for that. This situation, these guys are a lot closer to employees. In fact, uh, their situation for most of them was that they had some sort of debt that they had to work off. And so they kind of indentured themselves to other people to work in their homes to pay off that debt. And the reason why we know that it's very different from what we experienced here is that a lot of them, once they paid off their debt, kept working in the house. Once they were free, they stayed with the family. They stayed with the guy that they were working for. And so this is different. And so they're called to respect their, the person they work for, they're to serve well. And they do that because 
they are a witness to the gospel, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And he says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Because they work for a believer, they should work harder. They should work better. They should be more respectful. And I think that that's important. Especially since, I don't know, 40% of the people in here work for a Christian institution. I think that our flesh responds to that situation in one of two ways. Either our boss is a great guy or girl who are gracious, and we, in our flesh, are tempted to take advantage of that grace. I know if I work hard, they'll like it. But I also know that if I don't work that hard, if I, you know, show up late, if I take it easy, if I spend all day on Facebook, my boss is going to give me grace. If I don't meet these deadlines, if I don't meet these goals, if I don't do what he wants me to do and work how he wants me to work, they will give me grace. The other way we take advantage of it is when our boss says he's a Christian and doesn't act like it. And then we feel justified in our lack of a good work ethic. We think, well, you know, he doesn't treat me how he should treat me, so I'm not going to work for him how I should work for him. I'm not sure which one of those scenarios is more common at HLG. I could guess, but I won't. But it's your responsibility to work how God has called you to work, to bear witness to the gospel through how you conduct yourself as an employee without regard to what the administration says, without regard to what your boss says, because of who you are. It has nothing to do with them. And so, whether you work for a Christian or not a Christian, whether you work at the college, whether you work at a school, whether you work for yourself and do what you want to do all the time, we are called to work in such a way that it bears witness to the gospel. So I would encourage you to think about what that looks like in your job. Right? I've already done some of that for myself. I get paid and don't deserve it. It is a witness to the gospel to me. And so how I pastor, how hard I work, or days when I'm lazy, I have to remind myself of the truth of the gospel and how it informs what I'm called to do. And I would encourage you to do the same thing with whatever job you have. I think the freedom we have because of the gospel is that it doesn't matter whether we get the approval from our boss or get the pay we think we deserve or want or you know get the recognition or the title or whatever. Whether we're working in the secular world, whether we're working for a Christian institution, whether we're working in the church. We are accepted because of what Jesus has done for us. Because of that, we should be able to be the best employees there are. Because we recognize that we have all the status that we need from him. We don't have to do anything at our jobs to earn that. And our boss can't take that away from us. So all of this stuff, it matters because when we obey, it doesn't, doesn't earn us anything. 
It's a response to what we've been given that we don't deserve. So because of that, we should conduct ourselves obediently. We should live in such a way that the name of God and the teaching of God's word is not reviled by our life. And when we do fail, when we do fall short, whether we're an elder or not an elder, our response is to repent, is to quit persisting in sin. Because if we do, we're maligning what Jesus died for. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I mean, I would just encourage you to, to do what we do every week. To remind yourself of what the Lord's Supper represents. That his body was broken, that his blood was shed for us and for our sin. That's, that's not just something we say. It's something that actually happened. Like our sins are paid for. Our obedience is purchased for us to walk in. That's why we remind ourselves. Because we forget. And so I would encourage you to just spend time in prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to convict you of ways in which you are failing to live out the gospel, whether it's at work or at home or wherever. And then respond, not to try to earn his favor, but try to respond to the grace that he's shown you, to to live with renewed vigor towards obedience. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the perfect shepherd and you are the perfect servant and you are the perfect master. You obeyed perfectly in every way and any possible way we could fall short, you did not. And yet you paid for all of our failures and all of our shortcomings. For our failures to repent. For our disrespect, for our laziness, for... anything and everything we could do to not live up to the standard that your Father set for us. And because you paid the penalty, we're free. We pray now that you would send your Spirit to remind us of that reality. That we would know that we don't have to earn anything from you We can do nothing to deserve what you've given us. And that because of the grace you've shown us, we can respond anyway in obedience. Help us now to remember and confess the goodness of the good news to us. pray that you would help us to prepare our hearts to celebrate all that you've done for us. You'd help us to respond to your word with obedience. 